Okay, let's uh, stand and read the, the Word of God. Uh, John, chapter 10, verse, starting at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone them. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because you said, I am the Son of God? If I do not believe, do the... If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And many believe in him there. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. This is uh, part two of your passage on being the good shepherd. And Lord, uh, remember three or four weeks ago when we preached on the first half, Lord, it was powerful to learn what it meant for you to be the good shepherd. And today is a secondary claim that you're making about yourself. And not only are you the Christ, but you are God. And I just pray, Lord, that we uh, get a hold of that in our heads and that we understand you in that way. It's critical to the Christian faith that we understand you as, as a, a divine being. And we will um, enjoy just learning from you today. And may your spirit guide me to church in Christ's name. Amen. Today will be more of a theological sermon um, than I usually do. There's a few verses in here that create uh, good debate in the Christian community. Um, so I encourage you to put your thinking caps on. And if you're tired, uh, now's the time to go fill up your coffee cup. Because you're going to need to be paying attention to some of these things. It's not going to be difficult, but it's just, you know, there's a few things, Lord, uh, that we just um, will want to work through together as a church. But let's start with... Uh, the verse 22 here. It says, At that time the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Notice uh, in verse 22, but the time of the year in Israel's calendar was the feast of dedication. Uh, if you were in Israel today, that holiday would be called Hanukkah. If you've ever heard of Hanukkah, that's what it would be. Also called the Feast of Lights, depending on what term you want to use. It was a unique feast because it wasn't part of the three feasts that was told by, told by God to be worshipped in the Old Testament for the Israelites. 
Um, the Israelites were to do three annual feasts a year, Passover, Tabernacles, and the first fruits. And Hanukkah was not part of the Old Testament covenant through the Mosaic Law. Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, was added about 170 years before Jesus was born. So Israel, from, that day, from 170 years before Jesus was born until this day, they, they, follow, they, they celebrate it annually. Um, why do they celebrate it? Well, it was a historic moment in the Jerusalem community, or in the Israelite community. Do you remember the big whiteboard study we did here on Revelation? I don't know if you remember it or not, but we talked about the Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes that came into Jerusalem about 170 AD, or, or yeah, BC, to say, 170 BC, and he came into Jerusalem and he tried to overtake the temple and overtake Jerusalem. And anybody that wouldn't bow down to him um, and honor him would, um, was basically martyred for their faith. He wouldn't allow them to read the Old Testament scriptures. Anyone who circumcised their voice as part of the Old Covenant practice uh, was to be killed. Um, he even set up a, 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 in the temple, he sacrificed a pig on the altar in, in Jerusalem and put up a statue of Zeus and told everyone of the Jews to worship this statue. Uh, he was a, um, just a, a, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that's going to come you know, in our time, likely. So this guy was a horrendous guy, but on December 25th, no less, uh, 167 BC, he took over the temple. And three years later, in 164 BC, on the exact same day, December 25th, this, the Judas Maccabees, which, which was a, a, one of the Jewish uh, guys, he set up this guerrilla warfare and caused a revolt, and three years later, conquered Antiochus Epiphanes and removed him from the temple, removed him from Jerusalem. So when he first came in, he... Antiochus Epiphanes took over the temple, desecrated it. Three years to the date, uh, this Maccabean revolt removes this guy, and it was a huge celebration, as you can imagine, in Israel, because this uh, Antichrist-type guy who forbade any God Yahweh worship and any of their, their practices of their, in their faith had been squandered for, for years, and next thing you know, they're liberated. And so they put lights in their homes and would light their, light their homes up with lights every year to say, hey... We remember the liberation under this, the, the headship of Judas Maccabee and his, and his cronies, and we are grateful to them for, for liberating Israel and allowing us to restore temple worship and to restore this, this worship of God. Um, those of you who have been in the sermon series uh, through John frequently know that every feast and festival in the first ten chapters has a spiritual significance for why Jesus does what he does, in these passages and what the words that he says. So he used, with the, the miracles he does, the things he says are always in conjunction with the feasts to draw the Israelites back to the Old Testament to say, I'm fulfilling Old Testament, I'm fulfilling Old Testament. And we've learned a few of these in our church uh, already. Things like, I'm the light of the world, wasn't by accident. Who's ever thirsty can come to me. You know, those things were not by accident. His healing of the blind man, not by accident, right? Um, I will tie in, uh, well, actually, I should say this first. Chapters 10 through 12 are all in the background of the Feast of Dedication. So everything you see in the next three chapters has the Feast of Dedication in mind. And I will tie in for you whenever I feel you should know what Jesus is doing and saying, how it ties into the Feast of Dedication, and what he's proclaiming by doing that. 
Uh, very specifically, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus is making a statement there. Okay? So that's just a side note. That's the context. Really, I didn't have to go into the Feast of Dedication, but it's really good for you to know biblical history and, and know what's going on. It's always useful for these things. All right? So that's a preamble to the actual meat of the passages. So the Feast of Dedication is going on in Jerusalem, and verse 23 tells us that Jesus is walking in the temple. He's going through, uh, having a stroll in the portico of Solomon, also known as Solomon's Colonnade. I've put a picture up here for you to see it. Um, if you see behind me the peripheral perimeter, where all the, where all the pillars are, that's the Solomon's Colonnade. You can see it's covered with, uh, it's the only part of the temple that's covered. And uh, so Jesus was doing probably laps around that uh, temple. Maybe he's getting exercise, who knows, um, trying to stay fit. But he's walking through the temple. We don't know where in the temple he was surrounded by the Jews, but that's what he's doing. And just for free, now the, in Acts chapter 3 and 5, Solomon's colonnade is mentioned there. And it, why it's so, why it's so um, important is that that's where the Christians gathered after Pentecost. So when Peter did his sermon, this famous sermon, and all the Christians were gathered, the, the people were gathered in Solomon's colonnade. That's where they were. They weren't actually in the heart and soul of the middle of the temple. They were in amongst those pillars. And it, it says in the scriptures too here, it's winter time. You know, in John chapter 10, it says winter. So again, if it's winter, December 25th, around there, somewhere in there, he's, uh, he's wants to be covered from the elements. So it makes sense that he's there. So that gives you a picture of where he was uh, in the temple. So he gets surrounded, and the Jews come at him with a strong, forceful question. They say, um, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Um, those of us who have been around John for a while know that they didn't come to him with a genuine, sincere heart. They're not saying, oh, Jesus, I really want to know who you are. Please tell us, are you really the Christ? From, we know their history. They're, they're hostile. They're aggressive to Jesus. They've already tried to stone him three separate times. This is, they, they got after him three times already trying to stone him. In verse 19, they say, after he declares himself to be the good shepherd, uh, and actually verse 20, or verse 20 I should say, it says that they accuse him of being demon-possessed and insane. So that's a really nice compliment to be called insane. You basically belong in Pinocchio and go hang out there. And uh, that's the accusations they're making against him. So this isn't a, gen a gentle, genuine question. This is an active, aggressive move to surround him while he's on a walk and to, to, to press him, you know, press him hard. So Jesus responds to them in verse 25. He says, I told you, I told you, basically, I'm the Christ, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. I found it interesting that Jesus says here, I told you, and you do not believe. Because nowhere in the first 10 chapters of John will you actually find Jesus saying to anybody, uh, the Jews should say, I am the Christ. Like those actual words don't come out of his mouth. He told the Samaritan woman in chapter 4 he was the Christ. If you remember, she says, I'm, we are waiting for the Messiah. We will believe him. And he says, I am he. And then she runs back to her village and says, I've met the Christ. So he's told the Samaritan woman, but he's never specifically told the Jews. So what does he mean by, I've told you? Well, perhaps he's referring to the events back in chapter 5. After he healed the paralytic man, they came up to him and said, What authority do you have? And he claimed to be equal with God, and he gave his reasons for it. Um, perhaps, though, it was actually more in chapter 8. Um, he's having a debate with the Jews about uh, 
Abraham and about um, whether, you, whether you're a child of God because you're born from Abraham's bloodline. And they, they press him about Abraham. And he says, before Abraham existed, I am. He's a claiming, claiming deity, declaiming to be the Son of God. So perhaps he's referring to those two things. It's, we don't know from the text. Regardless, though, Jesus says this. I told you, you didn't believe. However, so if you don't believe my words, at least believe the works that I do in my Father's name, because these testify of me. So Jesus is saying, you might not believe my words, that I'm the Messiah, but maybe he's saying, I told you because you've seen the works that I've done, and you should know who I am, based on that. And again, uh, the Old Testament scriptures talked about the healing of lame people only attributed to God and the Messiah to come. The healing of a blind man was only attributed to the power of God and the Messiah to come. So when they saw the paralyzed man after 38 years being raised from, to full health and a man born blind, fully restored, those acts should show that he is plainly Jesus Christ. Or sorry, the Christ, I should say, the Messiah. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you want me to plainly tell you if I'm the Christ? What else can I do? I mean, look at the miracles that I've just performed in your midst. The sad truth, though, was these religious leaders uh, refused to believe Jesus was the Christ. And Jesus says why, why they did in verse 26 and 27. He says, You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, these are the verses that are loaded with theological discussion in the church. Um, many people who are intelligent, uh, I, I, intelligent Christians, who I look up to and, and I actually go to for advice and, and, and ask for their sort of input into scriptures. So believe that what Jesus is saying here is, um, you do not believe because you are out of my sheep, is a statement saying, you do not believe because God didn't predetermine that you would believe. In other words, if you were one of, if I, God had predetermined and chosen you to believe, then you would have believed, but because he didn't, you don't. So it has a, it's an issue of being in, an, uh, in what's called the elect. So if you are elect, you are predetermined by God what, who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. I'll, I'll just read you John MacArthur. I use his Bible. Um, he's been a great teacher for me. He says, that, he says it this way, and he's one who's subscribed to this. He says, The elect will heed Christ's call to salvation and continue in faith and obedience to eternal glory. I would suggest to you that this is not what is being said here. And I'll give you two substantiations, starting with the strongest argument. In verse 25 and in verse 37. In verse 25, Jesus says this. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. He puts the onus on them. I've told you I'm the Christ, but you've ref you have refused to believe. He could have said this. I told you, but because God predetermined that you wouldn't believe, that's why you don't believe. But he puts the onus on them to believe. Now some might say, well, it's not that clear there, Andrew. That's, that's, your, that's your interpretation. 37 and 38. 37 and 38 are a slam dunk. Look at this. If I do not believe, he says to, the, he says to the, the Pharisees there, if I do not, if I do the works of my Father and do not believe, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. He's putting the onus on the Pharisees to believe. Do you see that? He puts the onus on them to believe. He says, believe the works so that you may know. It seems preposterous. And it seems um, 
nonsensical to ask these guys to at least believe in his works and believe, if they're not going to believe his words, if they're predetermined. Jesus could just leave it and say, well, the reason why you don't believe is because you're predetermined so, and leave it at that. He calls on them to please believe what I'm telling you, but if you won't, please believe what I'm doing. So again, that's probably the strongest argument. It makes no sense that if God predetermined these men to be unbelievers, why he then puts the capacity and the responsibility on these men to believe in him. It's their freedom of choice to do so. Why call on them to do so if they were predetermined not to? Secondly, it might be a bit of a weaker argument, but it's, it's there in the text, is to understand the characteristics, first of all, of what makes up a sheep. Two characteristics make up a sheep. They listen to his voice and follow. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Interesting, in verse 3, he says the same thing. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his sheep by name and leads them out. So a voice recognition, a leading. Verse 4, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Again, they're following because they know his voice. Verse 16, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, I must bring them out also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. The parallel in every single characteristic to be a sheep of, the, of Jesus is you must listen and follow, listen and follow, listen and follow. He's saying this to the Pharisees in verse 26, you do not believe because you are people who are unwilling to listen to me and follow me. That's a definition of sheep within the passage. And remember, these guys were, were perpetually hardened towards Jesus. They had a hatred for him. They are obstinate. They rejected everything he taught and said. So that's why he pleased them, saying, at least believe in my works if you won't believe in me. And it's really tragic that these religious leaders rejected Jesus because belief in him came at a, with, a, with an unbelievable promise that they would. They pick up those promises in 27 and 28. He says... My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, there's rich theological truths in these verses for Christians, great promises. And I'll just give you a few of them. First of all, notice that eternal life is something given to us, or it's not earned. He says, I give eternal life to them. So it's a gift from God. Our culture's motto is this, you do stuff and you'll get stuff. If you do enough to please God, he'll accept you the way you are. Not according to Jesus and not according to the Gospel of John. The theme of this book so far has been eternal life is something graciously given to us by God and not our automatic right. Let me just remind you of two, two uh, passages in John. This is a really important in John chapter 1, verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood or the will of flesh, or the will of man, but of God. So again, nothing you can, your, your, your hereditary, your, your, you know, the, the efforts you make in your religious, uh, um, your religious uh, acts, None of this stuff will help you being born of God. It's an act of God. 
So it's a brilliant thing he says here. Jesus gives life. He imparts life. John chapter 3 verse 2. This is a religious leader of the church. Nicodemus coming up to, to Jesus and saying what, you know, he starts flattering Jesus. And Jesus just cuts through the flattery and says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This man is, prep, is a teacher of religious things, knows the Old Testament inside and out, and he is coming to Jesus, believing he's right with God, and God says to him, unless you're born again, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom. In other words, the theme throughout John is that eternal life is something given to you, given to me, it's not a right. The second thing you want to notice in this passage is that is eternal life is something we can experience now. He says, and I give eternal life to them. The eternal life, now granted, has a, a, future, a future thinking. Of course, it's like uh, something that you'll have in glory. But eternal life is something you can experience now. You are given the promise of eternal life. And this is really interesting. Although it's ultimately after Jesus dies that we'll receive eternal life, look at the assurance that we can have in this lifetime. Uh, John 3.18 is very interesting. John 3.18 says this, um, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in, this, in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's saying this to the people. In this lifetime, if you're walking around and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're, you're spiritually dead. So even though you're alive physically, you're dead spiritually, even though you're alive. So two people are standing beside each other. One's put their faith in Christ and one hasn't. One's got eternal life and one doesn't have eternal life. It's, a, it's quite interesting how you're, you look the same from the outside, but one has their soul got a promise of eternal life now and in the future. Thirdly, eternal life is something that we can be assured of never losing. Look at that in verse 28. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In the Christian faith, we, we coin this term eternal security. It gives believers eternal security. This idea that once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. Once you've received the gift, you can never lose it. Uh, MacArthur again says this, No stronger passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament exists for the absolute eternal security of every true Christian. And he says, If even one were to perish or be snatched out of God's hand, God would be a liar. So, I mean, MacArthur, look at that. No passage in the Old or New Testament speaks stronger to the eternal security of a person that's, or a Christian. That's quite an amazing statement. Again, I'd agree with this, but look at the context. The context, the context is dealing with outside forces coming into the fold of the sheep. Outside forces coming into the fold of the sheep to kill, destroy, and, and to steal. Think of it again, because um, he uses the word, no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's two kind of snatching uh, people or animals within this passage already. Look at the thieves and robbers in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and robber. In verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy, and I have come that they may have life. So the thief and robber comes into the fold of sheep, he attempts to make them perish, he attempts to make them, he snatches them out of the shepherd's hand. Uh, the wolf as well in verse 12, it says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, he who 
who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Again, this is a wolf coming in to snatch um, the, the sheep out of, of the shepherd's hand, and so causing per perishing or, or death. So these are external outside forces coming in to steal the sheep. And Jesus is saying this, no external force coming in will ever separate from me, you from me. As a good shepherd, your eternal life is secure under my divine care. And Romans 8 speaks to this. Um, sorry, I have to turn around. Romans 8 says this, Who shall separate us from the will of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the parallels. They're all external outside forces trying to steal you from God. The eternal security of a believer is such when these forces are in existence. What it's not talking about in context, though, is one's in the internal forces, one's free will to actually walk away from God themselves. Witherington, Ben Witherington says it this way, and I agree with him, he says, this speaks to the matter of being stolen by outside forces or false shepherds, not to the matter of personally chosen apostasy. I'll give an example, Israel, Israel in the Old Testament, chosen, predetermined plan of God to choose them for salvation and to be light to the nations. And what do they do? Through their own free will, they choose apostasy. They choose apostasy. When the Amalekites came to attack them, God prevailed in victory over them. Uh, when they came into Canaan, God prevailed in victory over them. No external forces could ever harm the Israelites. But soon as they, but God never said, so they were secure, eternally secure with him. But as soon as they chose to go after the golden calf or spurn him, he, didn't, he, he, he said, fine, I'll discipline you and you're out, of, you're out. Personal apostasy was an internal choice. So, I, I, anyway, that's, we'll get into this in discussion more likely. But I want to say it's a great comfort to us as Christians, isn't it? To know that no external force can separate you from the Lord. If you're going through doubts right now about where you are with the Lord, to know that sickness can't take you away from Him, death can't take you away from Him, distresses you face, you're all secure with the Lord despite all these external forces. But this security and protection not only comes from Jesus, it comes from the Father as well. Look at 29 and 30. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus is saying to the religious leaders here, not only the sheep protected by me, but by the Father as well, for them, which would be Yahweh. They're not two different flocks here. It's not like God has a flock and Jesus has a flock, and they're operating independently. This is one flock under one shepherd. Under one shepherd. The Father and Son are working together in finding sheep and securing the sheep. But Jesus is clear here, they're not working as two separate beings. They're working together as one being. See that? I and the Father are one. Now it's clear from the religious leader's reaction in verse 31, they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. They picked up stones, it says, and were attempted to stone him. 
And further evidence the fact that they understood the claiming God is after Jesus says in 32, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? And they say to him, for a good work we're not stoning you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Now I know this is really tough for us to get our heads around. How can Jesus over here be, be over here on the left, and God be over here on the right, and yet they're one? How does that work? It's a mind twister. It's hard for me to get my head around. I'm going to deal with that question in the, in the lessons. I won't deal with it now. And it probably deserves its own sermon, to be honest with you, because it's such a massive topic. But let's first of all look at, uh, before I get into it, let's first of all look at Jesus' response to them um, for his, their accusations against him for claiming to be deity and claiming to be um, blasphemous. And this, this is a hard passage to solve. <laughs> uh, it's very tricky with its wording. But in order to understand it, you have to go to Psalm uh, 82, I think. Let me look this up here. Is it 82? Yeah, 82. But let's read it first. This is what Jesus says. Has it not been written in your law, I said, that you are gods? If you call them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? It's, again, tough to understand that at first glance. So look at, look at Psalm 82, because this is what he's quoting. He says there, um, actually I'll just look it up here, instead of turning my head around. And I think I used the NIV in, or NLT in that translation because it was a bit easier to understand, but I'll read it from the NASB. God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless to do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men, and fall like any one of those princes. Here's what's going on. The context of Psalm 82 is this. Men had been appointed as rulers in Israel to be judges over the people. As a judge, you were recipients of God's word and you were required to obey it yourself. But because you were appointed in that position, you were now God's representative. So when you were judging over people's matters, when they came to you, you were speaking on behalf of God because people knew you received his word and were using his word to judge the matters. The problem with these people was that they were being wicked in their judgments and unfair and unmerciful. They weren't being like God in his character. Even though they were being this way, they were still given the title of gods, small g, G-O-D-S. Why? Because they're speaking on behalf of God, so they received the title of gods. Jesus' point was this. If these men were given the title of gods, who were merely mortal, who sinned and eventually died, why would they seek to kill Jesus for taking the title of Son of God when it was Yahweh who sanctified him and sent him into the world? So if you call these guys gods and they were God's spokespersons, how come you're getting mad at me for claiming to be the Son of God, using that title, when I actually from heaven and I have no sin and I, um, I'm divine? I've come, I have heavenly origin, not earthly. And that was Jesus' logic behind his argument. 
That's why he appeals to them in verse 37 38. He says, I, I'm telling you this, I'm, but I know you, your history with me is you won't believe my words. So at least look at my works. Do not believe me, but if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you know and understand that I am the Father, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In other words, please, guys, look at the works that I'm doing to show you that I'm a fulfillment of Psalm 82, or I'm, I'm greater than Psalm 82. The hostility will continue, and we picked up in 39. It says, therefore, they were seeking again to seize them, and they eluded their grasp. So continued rejection of them. I know it's a bit heavier today, and it's uh, probably, I don't know if it's, um, you're following everything I'm saying, but uh, we can use the dialogue to clarify things, but it's a pretty sort of stronger theological sermon. Um, I want to leave you with a few lessons, though, to, uh, to end the, the day with. And the first one is this. Uh, lesson one is eternal life is a gift that is given to us by God. You might think, well, I already know that. That's not new to me. Yeah, I understand that, but... You know, the thing about it, when I'm in dialogues in evangelistic circles within our community, I've never had a conversation with anybody in Opatos outside of the Christian community that believes that eternal life's a gift. They all believe they do stuff to get stuff. They believe that their life as it is, is good enough for God to accept them. The good outweighs the bad. So it's really important to understand that eternal life's a gift, even though it may seem simple to us because it's not known to the outside world. It's a gift. Second lesson is no outside force or external force can threaten the eternal security of a follower of Jesus. Again, it's a great message of hope. If you get sick, don't have to worry about if when you die, if, God, if you're separated. If you go through depression, if you're going through depression, it doesn't matter. God, you're still not going to be separated from God. If a natural disaster strikes and we lose everything, we're not going to be separated. If we get persecuted in the name of Jesus, we're not going to be separated. It's a beautiful hope to us that may be wondering whether God's accepting of us or not. But again, no, no outside force can threaten. But that's not talking about, again, internal apostasy. If ever you want to walk away from the God and say, basically, pardon the language, but screw you, I'm a, I, I hate you, he'll let you go. He'll let you go. But that's your choice, not his. He'll hold on to you as long as you love him back. He'll never let you go. I will say one thing that was very interesting about this. I was listening to a sermon by a guy named Simon Manchester. He's from uh, Australia. And, and, and in Deuteronomy, there's 31 chapters. Do you know in Deuteronomy, 29 times, 29 times in 29 chapters, God tells Israel, I chose you, I chose you, I chose you, 29 times. Right? It's a gift that I've chosen you, it's a gift. What's interesting is this, at the very end in chapter 30 and 31, guess what God says to Israel? Now that you've known 29 times I've chosen you, I'd like you to choose life. Choose life. The blessings and the cursings. He lays them out on Mount Sinai and says, choose life. Isn't that interesting? If God predetermined that Israel was chosen for salvation, which they were, why does he then say in the 31st, 30th, 31st chapter, please choose life if they've already been predetermined before the foundations of the world to be, to be God's light to the nations? <laughs> interesting, right? Same thing for us. He says to us, I chose you. I chose you. You're a gift. This is a gift. This is a gift. Now, Genesis house, please choose life. Anyway, 
Let's move on. Lesson number three. Genuine followers of Christ listen to and follow His voice. And again, you might think, Andrew, that's a very simple lesson. Maybe you don't think that, but I, I, when I first wrote it out, I thought, is this too simplistic? But you know what? It has massive implication. Here's why. One of my frustrations, um, not even frustrations, one of my challenges as a, someone who speaks to people about the Lord one-on-one outside of, outside of the church is that we are, we are in a culture that everybody believes in God. Virtually everybody. Not everybody, but you, you, if you talk to people, they say, I have a belief in God. I have a belief in God. I have a belief in God. Right? I, I hear it a lot. In other words, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. What's interesting is maybe a way of approaching it is saying, so saying something like this. Okay. Um, do you, however, listen to and follow the voice of Jesus? Maybe that's a better question. I believe in God. Me too. Do you tell me how you, when like how do you set up your life to listen to and follow Jesus? He says, "My sheep." I, I you become a sheep of Jesus if the characteristics in chapter ten are those two things. But let's not worry about other people. Let's worry about our own lives now. Where are we as a church? Are we known for listening to the words of Christ, and are we known for following them? And these are not meant as shame or guilt questions to you. These are just the general reality of the Christian life. If the key to being a follower of Jesus is to listen to Him, here's a question for us. How often do we, outside of this morning, spend time listening to the Word, word of the Lord? If one of the characteristics of being a sheep is listening to the Jesus, how often outside of my preaching on Sunday morning do you and I listen to the Word of the Lord? Do we only go to the Word when we need something? Like the slot machine Jesus? My child's sick. Cha-ching, God, can you please heal my son, daughter? I'm, I, I'm out of work. Cha-ching, can you pull the lever? God, can you give me a new job? How are our habits in our life set up? What are our habits in our life set up to make us a priority? Seriously, you, you discipline yourselves to go to work and to do your, make your appointments what are, what are our habits in order to set up the fact that we would sit under and listen to the following of Jesus? Or to, yeah. And the key then is how can, if the second characteristic is to follow him, how can we follow if we're not listening? <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that God designed the Bible to be the source of his voice. There are few people in the world who have got to actually have a vision, a dream, a heard of audible voice of Jesus. His primary way is through the scriptures. So if he designed us to follow him, there's no way we can follow him if we don't know what the Bible says. And yes, we know certain aspects of it, but in every category of life, like I said, God has something to say to us. So again, you might think genuine followers of Christ listen to and follow his voice. Pretty simple lesson. Simple and understanding much more applicable in application. Are we listening to him and following him in his evangelistic desires? Answer this question honestly. When is the last time you or I fought for the kingdom of God in a spiritual battle in a dialogue? When's the last time we did? 
how we how do we structure our family, our morals and ethics? Just some things to think about. Final lesson, and the you know the from Jesus' point of view, the most important claim, and this is simple again, Jesus is God. Again, important for evangelism. Many believe in God, but my experience has been it's hard to distinguish this in conversation. Perhaps the question when someone says, do I believe in God, is to say, do you believe in Jesus? And, then we'll, and that's going to be the determining factor, because at that, that point there's going to be a division. Now, certain cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they all exist because they do not believe that God and Jesus are one. They are two separate beings, two separate entities, and that is why they have the cults they do. And they teach that Christianity is false because of this claim to be one and the same. And their argument goes as follows. How can you have two separate people being one being? It doesn't make any sense. So Christianity is false. I'm currently sitting down with a man. I've had one, two conversations, but the last one in particular, he was a, he's a Christian guy who's, walked, who's told me now that we have the wrong interpretation of Scripture because Jesus is not God, and he gave me a two-page email of why he isn't. Great. I, I love how he laid it up for me. It's very helpful. But here's where this is awesome for you and I in terms of evangelism. Ready? People will say, well, how do you believe that? Guess what? I don't, I'm not the one who said that. Jesus himself even isn't necessarily the one, like he does claim it here, but you know who's the strong argument for us in this whole thing? is the Pharisees. You might say, well, the cults might not believe that, and certain individuals might not believe that, and you might think I'm wrong. The problem is, do you think the Pharisees are wrong? The Pharisees are the one who say in verse 33, we're not stoning you for a good work, but because you yourself make yourself out to be God. So forget what Jesus, some people might even say, Jesus never declared himself to be God, only the Son of God. Okay, fair, I'll give you that argument. So how do you answer verse 33? The Pharisees tell Jesus, Your problem, my problem with you is you think you're God. Anyway, the Pharisees do all the work for us. The Pharisees do all the work. And it's, it's an awesome way now of being in an evangelistic conversation. And if someone said to me, well, Andrew, Jesus is not God. God is whatever you want it to be or whoever you make it to be. I'd say, well, that's not what Jesus said. Actually, that's not true. I'd say, that's not what the Pharisees said. What do you mean? Well, look at 1033. How do you, how do you possibly linguistically work that out to change the, the words of that? It's impossible. Which leads me to my final point, and this, is, this deserves its own sermon, but I'll just give you something to think about um, to leave it at this. How can it be possible that Jesus and the Father are one? When in other places of Scripture, it appears that they are unique, separate entities. I mean, listen to, listen to this. I'll just give you one example. Therefore, Jesus answered and said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Yeah, that's kind of weird. How can they be one if Jesus is copying and seeing the Father? Like, in a visual kind of way, if you take it to mean that. Then it says, whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Again, if, I, if I'm with my Son, and my Son copies me, it's because we're two separate persons and he can, he can copy me. And Jesus is talking in that kind of language. And this is why the cults are so popular and people denounce the Trinity. 
But let me give you a definition of the Trinity to help you understand how this works. And it, it, it works this way. God is, is one in being, expressed in three persons. The definition of the Trinity is God in one being, expressed in three persons. And a contradiction would be this. God is one in being, in three in being. That's a contradiction. But to be one in, or to be one in person and three in persons, that's a contradiction. To be one, to be one entity, one being expressed in three persons is not a contradiction. The next logical question then is, well, what's the difference between a being and a person? Right? A being is the quality which makes you someone. Or a being is some a quality that makes some something something. <laughs> It's what, you, it's what you are. It's your whatness. Right? So if you're, a person is, makes you who you are. So if I were to say to you, what am I? You wouldn't say, you're Andrew. If I said, what am I? You'd say, you're a human being. If I were to say, who are you? You wouldn't say, you're a human being. You'd say, you're Andrew. Right? What, what, what are we as people? We're human beings. We're not, no one would say, what are you? You're a Kevin. You're an Abilene. You're a Shannon. No one talks like that. So what you are is a, hu- is, a, is a human being, but who you are is expressed in your character traits, in your characteristics. So what I am is tendons, bones, skin, eyes, a heart. But who I am is a character traits. I'm loving. I'm merciful. I'm gracious. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not, I should be more. But that's hopefully who I will be, right? And who you should be as well as we follow the Lord. So, so again, Jesus, therefore, can be, when he says that I and the Father are one, and we are one, it's because God is one being expressed in three personhoods. We are one being expressed in one personhood. That's the hard part to get your head around. It's like, we're one being expressed in one personhood. He's one being expressed in three personhood. Which leads me to the last thing, is why would he express himself in three persons? So this is a big topic, but God is defined as what in Scripture? What's his number one characteristic in Scripture? It begins with an L word. God is love. How can love exist in pure monotheism? Monotheism. If I'm the only person in the world that exists, and I'm a single entity, how can I express love? Love can only be expressed in relational terms. So God has to, in the Godhead, exist three in one to express relationship, to be loving. If God is monotheistic, which is what the Muslims believe, Allah is one, then what happens is that God cannot, Allah cannot be loving. You try, try, try think about this. Put yourself as Hank Williams, uh, not Hank Williams, <laughs> Hank, uh, not Hank Angerdraft, either. What's his name? Tom Hanks, in that movie, like when he's on the island. He went crazy, Looney Tunes, because he was the only one in isolation. And he has Wilson, this little volleyball, that he tries to express a relationship to because he's desperate for love. Right? So he's going insane because there's no one to love. Because he recognizes that love can't exist without another human being to do it to. And so God has to, the Trinity has to exist for, for God to be loving. Because he has to express it. And then when he creates humanity, he can now express his love through Trinity to us. 
And that's why, that's why you can be one in being and three in person. This is not in my notes. I'll leave you with one thing to think about too. Uh, he talks about the Father and Jesus being one. Look at Acts is brilliant. The steward knows this passage. We talked about this. You remember uh, uh, lying to the Holy Spirit and Ananias and Sapphira? They, they sell up, take a piece of property, they lie about how much it was worth and stuff. But listen to this. Peter says to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the, the land? And then they get in this conversation, and then he says this, you have not lied to men, but to God. What? Wait a minute. Your, my problem with you is that you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then two verses later he says, you've lied to God, not to men. Because Peter understands the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons express, uh, three persons making up one being. And so, uh, I'll leave you with that. And that's, this is, this is how you would answer somebody about the Trinity, just so you know. This is my answer anyway, as a, as a basic introduction to it. And it's much more complicated than this, but, you know, the egg analogy goes so far, like, you know, God's like an egg, three in one. That works, so, I mean, that's an illustration, but that doesn't explain the whatness, the who-ness, why, why the Trinity has to exist in the first place. It doesn't explain God being love and all those types of things.